Hi, and welcome. Hi, and welcome. The Facts and Blog and Podcast. These heroes of hunting, you know, that are on a big stage like Theodore Roosevelt. Well, with Theodore Roosevelt, you had a young, vibrant, athletic, effervescent, you know, chief executive. And as soon as William Howard Taft raised his hand to accept the uh, oath of office uh, from uh, the chief justice and replaced Theodore Roosevelt, became the 27th president of the United States. Theodore turned around, raced back to Sagamore Hill, changed his clothes, got on a boat, and went hunting for a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week, Jay is out, so instead of Jay's World of Eats, it's uh, Zach's World of Snacks. Pretty clever. Uh, I have some reserve snacks here. They look disgusting. It's a change of script. Normally, I'm the one surprised by the snacks, and today, Zach shall be. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this, but... <clears throat> no, I know what you're going to talk about. Don't talk about it. Can't say that. You got to keep this up. You can you can bleep that out. Are they the manufacturer, the whole shebang? Or is there like a... It just says product of Canada. Yeah, wholeshebang.com. We'll yeah, I'm starting up. to kind of feel my Canadian side come out, eh? Eh? You know? Eh? That's a don't you know? <laughs> don't you know? You know, it's no secret that the things that you keep in your gun safe are important. They're valuable. They're things that you want, you need, you need to hold on to, whether it's just your firearms and supplies. Or I know a lot of people like to use their gun safes to hold things like tax returns and other important documents, family photos. All of those things are incredibly important. And to help keep better track of it and better maintenance on those items, Lockdown has a series of devices and utilities and tools to help keep those things that you treasure safe. One of my personal favorites that we actually use here in the office quite a bit uh, around our storage for cameras and lighting and things like that is just one of their dehumidifiers. Now they have lots of other stuff. You may have already heard of the golden rod. You've heard a lot of stuff about the lockdown puck, uh, which is a smart device to help keep your gun drawer, your safe, your tools, even your wine cellar safe. Uh, and checking up on the humidity and the atmosphere in those places as well. We did a great episode with Lockdown several weeks back that you could check out at factsandfirearms.com slash blog, where we go through pretty much their entire product line and everything from the Lockdown Puck to dehumidifiers to even things like, you know, storage, rack shelving, things of that variety, keeping your safe, keeping your gun room clean, organized and protected and you could even get something like this one of their room or gun safe dehumidifiers if you're looking to organize that space in your home again whether it's for your gun safe or just anything that you hold valuable we'd recommend you go to lockdown.com hi and welcome to episode 45 of the facts and blog and podcast we have a great show coming up for you today returning to the show is our friend philip schreier he's a senior curator at the nra museum and and you may remember a few episodes back, we had Phil on talking about the firearms of the American Revolution. Great show. Phil is just a wealth of knowledge, and he's back with us for a topic of hunting through the years. So we are going to go all the way back to the Mayflower and go up to post-World War II hunting today. Some of the technology, some of the social stuff that was happening, uh, and some of the pieces that just make hunting great. And you can find all of those resources at NRA. 
nramuseum.org. But stick around for our conversation with Phil. Also coming up on today's show, Jay is out. So Zach Innsprucker is sitting in, our inventory control manager for Zach's World of Snacks. We'll be giving away a Condition 1 hard-sided rifle case. So make sure you stick around for all of the ways to enter. And don't forget, we are in the middle of our sportsman hunting giveaway, part two of this giveaway. So we have another custom rifle completed by our friends at One-Off Coding LLC in Dayton. Uh, and it is, again, a custom Faxon build. So you definitely want to get your hands on it. This time around, we've brought back Scentlock, Hornady, Bison Coolers, and Rocky Boots. Uh, we're also teaming up with GSM, uh, Muddy Outdoors for a blind, Stealth Cam, Vortex Optics. Uh, it's going to be a huge giveaway. So make sure you go to factsandfirearms.com and get your daily entries. We'll take a quick break to hear from our friends of the podcast, and then we will get into our conversation with Phil from the NRA Museum. I think it goes without saying that uh, pretty much every gun owner has their favorite tools, their favorite things that they like to keep in their range bag or at their workbench. Uh, and it's no secret for us that the Wheeler Fat Wrench is one of those. We have several of these up in our assembly area with our armory technicians, and it's because it's a simple, great device uh, that can be used in multiple applications. It's an adjustable torque wrench in a screwdriver type fashion with a series of bits that'll help you with everything from rifle takedown to scope mounting and everything in between. Fantastic tool. Uh, so if you haven't checked these out, you can go to wheelertools.com and they're available in a ton of places, including amazon.com. But make sure you check it out, especially if you're looking for that one missing piece for your workbench or you wanna give it to a, a new gun owner to help set up their range bag. Definitely a great choice. Again, check out our friends at wheelertools.com and take a look at the fat print. All right. Well, we're very excited to have Phil Schreier back uh, from the NRA Museum. He's a senior curator there. If you haven't checked out a few episodes ago, we did uh, the Firearms of the American Revolution. And uh, we're going to have Phil back on in the future to talk a little more about those historical firearms through those major war eras. But since we're getting into hunting season and gun season, uh, I found a, a, an old article of yours, Phil, that goes all the way through uh, the, the history of hunting hunting or hunting through the years as it was called. So first of all, thanks. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate being asked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that I think is kind of poetic about how these topics line up with what we talked about, you know, the, the first time you were on and what we're talking about now is that when we're looking at hunting through the years, your article here, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, you know, starts kind of in that same vein we were talking about with the Revolutionary War firearms, you know, that uh, uh, that it's that same type of breadth, that same type of, of uh, timeline. Um, but before we, you know, dive into it too deep, when, when you're writing articles like this, it, it seems like there's so much information to have to weed through, you know, are you just using you know, resources that you get through the NRA or kind of where are your favorite places to look for the information when, when you're pulling this stuff together? Well, uh, you know, the, the library is my favorite place. You know, it's my safe zone. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, and I've, I've, I, uh, you know, we've got a tremendous library here at the office. I, um, uh, I put one together 
uh, personally back at the house where I do, you know, most of my writing. So if I was doing an article like this, I would have probably done it, you know, from my, my basement at home. And I, I just moved uh, into my own home, uh, my first house, and uh, back in April, and and it took me till uh, you know July to get moved in, and and I got to say the first good night's sleep I had was when all my books were on the shelves. <laughs> I bet. You know, I knew I knew my library was was all there, and uh, so you know, being having access to actual books, I I just can't see how. Kindle or the internet or, you know, being able to look at it on screen could replace, you know, being able to pick something up and hold it in your hand, fall asleep while you're looking at it and pick it up and it's still right <laughs> where you left it, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And so being able to do research and, uh, and have it right there in front of me, uh, I, I don't think I could ever replace that. Yeah for sure. Well, you know, we just uh, got through Thanksgiving this year and everything. And one of the first, uh, uh, you know, videos I ever showed my daughter about Thanksgiving was uh, the Charlie Brown Mayflower Voyagers. And uh, the one of the first things that's on your timeline here in the 1600s uh, for hunting through the years uh, talks about the Mayflower and talks about match locks and, and wheel locks. Uh, for those who are maybe, you know, new to historical firearms, could you give the book jacket blurb overview of what, you know, a match lock versus a, a wheel lock is? Well, sure. Uh, match lock is one of the first guns that you can actually hold and fire, you know, that counts as a gun. Uh, you know, the very first guns, uh, were, were cannons basically in artillery pieces. Um, but then as they kind of shrunk them down, uh, you know, they, uh, made them, uh, applicable to individuals. You have the development of the matchlock. So basically you have a giant tube. Mm. It's got a very large end at one end and a very small hole at the other. The large end is the muzzle and you pour the gunpowder and the projectiles down that end. And uh, the other end with a small hole, that's the uh, that's the breech. And that's where you get the fuse or the frizzing pan. Uh, it's how you prime the gun to get it to go off. And uh, I call, I've always called it the three Ps. Uh, you have your uh, propellant, your projectiles, and your primer. And it's just how gun technology evolves over the next couple hundred years as to which one of those things is, is getting attention, you know, from 900 AD when the Chinese invented it or, or thereabouts until the 1880s, the propellant black powder stayed the same. That was always the same. Uh, the projectiles pretty much stayed the same. They were round lead balls or, mini balls, but they were lead balls cast. It's the primer that gets the most attention in the early development. So with a match lock, you have a piece of burning hemp rope uh, impregnated with saltpeter to keep it kind of sparking along. It, it would resemble like an unfiltered cigarette sitting in an ashtray. You know, yeah. it's just going to burn itself out over a period of time. And uh, you would have to blow on it to get it to uh, to 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 re-embolden the embers uh, in it, and when you're ready to fire, you just pull the trigger, 
the uh, jaw of the of the vice would drop the the burning rope into the frozen pan, the breach, igniting like a genie puff cloud of smoke that would send the fire in through the vent hole, touch off the propellant inside the, the breech of the gun, and then send your projectiles downrange. Uh, not very complicated, fairly simplistic, uh, but very useless in the rain. Uh, yeah. If it's raining outside, uh, you know, that, that's not going to go over too well. Plus, you also have the problem of standing a, a, a musket on its, on its end and uh, pouring uh, gunpowder, loose gunpowder down the muzzle while you also have uh, a hot ember burning at the bottom. Uh, nothing could go wrong with that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) holding a can of gunpowder over an open flame. Yeah. uh, That's nowhere on the uh, direction box. So, uh, so you got to try and get away from that ember. And so they, uh, just like cavemen had figured out, uh, uh, well, not cavemen, I guess they didn't have steel, but (laughs) (laughs) you strike flint against steel and you get sparks. And, uh, I guess cavemen figured out friction, but not uh, flint and steel. But anyway, flint and steel, you get a shower of sparks when the flint hits the steel, and that ignites the uh, the gunpowder and the frizzing pan. And uh, that uh, that brings you to your uh, snap-ons developed uh, in, in Spain, the Michelet. Uh, I'm sorry, the Snap-Hunts in, in the Netherlands and the Low Countries, the Michelet developed in Spain, and uh, eventually the, the French and English flintlocks. Got it. Now, one of the things that's mentioned here in the article, I think it's still true that that uh, you guys have the John Alden wheel lock muscle and, in, in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, wheel lock musket in your collection? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> or did? So, problem with there. Um, we started to look into that. In fact, I wrote an article in one of the magazines early on in my career that I'm quite embarrassed about because I, I was just taking the word of, uh, you know, other colleagues and people and, and you know, what they call oral tradition in history as fact. I mean, why would anybody tell me a story? And yeah. uh, it turned out not to be uh, very true as I went and did some additional research, uh, primary research. Turns out that uh, the original story goes that the 1920s, when they were restoring the, the Alden House in Duxford, Mass., that... Uh, this gun was found loaded next to the front door in a secret compartment, ready to repel Indian attacks at, an, at a moment's notice. And it was found during, and somehow uh, it was donated to the NRA as a result. Well, uh, we went through uh, the archives and records of the Alden house and no gun was ever found during the restoration of the house. Mm. Nothing like that. There wasn't even anything hinting at something similar to that being found. Then we went into John Alden's own life. Now, he had 10 kids. Uh, 
And uh, so there are a lot of relatives. And uh, one of the things that we found was a, uh, a, a note written by his oldest son saying that after the fire, they, they, they landed in 1620, and then there was a fire in the Alden House in 1654. And so they, they, they built the new house that, that is still stands today in 1654. And he wrote, after the fire, nothing of the old pilgrim was saved, save for his Bible. Mm. That the Bible that he brought over with him was the only thing that was, you know, saved from the house fire. Uh, so that's kind of pretty, pretty indicative of the, you know, the fact that, it, you know, there was nothing left uh, of Alden's possessions. Then you get down to the other levels of, you know, evidence and you find out that this gun and its design was too late for 1620. It was about, you know, 1660s, 1680s in design. And a lot of folks, even myself, you know, originally thought, oh, come on, it's a wheel lock, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they're all pretty much look alike, don't they? And guy uh, said, no, it's the, uh, they're differences. It's like, you know, a 42 Ford four-door, Versus uh, a 49 Ford Fedor. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's still a, a, a flathead V8 Ford or, you know, Ford, but it, it looks completely different. Uh, so uh, you've got those nuances in the design of the gun itself that takes it way past the uh, founding of the um, of, of the colony in Plymouth. And uh you know, we have a lot of uh, a, a lot of relics, uh, archaeological finds, especially at Jamestown, uh, that show that matchlocks and uh, uh, you know a number of wheelocks were the primary types of uh, of firearms, but especially uh, you know Michelets and snap-ons. But the wheelock's going to be the most expensive gun out there. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, and and let's uh, let's jump ahead. A, you know, a, a couple of of generations here. You know, this is something that was brought up um, uh, a few weeks ago on the show uh, when I had. Um, uh, our local sheriff here from Butler County on the show. Uh, we were talking a bit about the upcoming election at the time. And he had mentioned uh, that he was on a podcast. Uh, uh, this is Sheriff Richard Jones. He's, he's on CNN and Fox News and stuff all the time. They, they love interviewing him. He's, he's quite a big <laughs> character. Um, but they, he was on a podcast in, in Britain. He was phoned in on a show and people were asking him, you know, what is, America's obsession with guns, you know, why, you know, why this, why that? And, you know, they, they were trying to grill him, but one of the reasons he goes, it's because of you, it's because of Britain, you know, you know, we, uh, you brought over your whole big army and we, we had to try to fight you off with, with squirrel rifles, you know, and, and that's something that's like right here on, uh, one of the first pages of your article there in the late 1700s, you know, is this whole idea of, you know, the militia, if you will, just being able to use their normal hunting arms, what they're normally taking out small game with to then use in, in wartime efforts. Yeah, no, they, uh, 
they serve dual purposes and to be a part of, you know, the, uh, the early attempts to set up a colony over here, you, you had to be proficient in arms. You had to bring a gun with you. Uh, if you were a male, you know, you, you weren't, you weren't allowed on the boat, uh, you know, unless you were fully trained. And, uh, and that goes a long way to providing, you know, as, as those very words appear for the common defense, Mm -hmm. you know, in our constitution. Uh, so, to provide for the common defense, that was a primary objective. Uh, you know, things were not all peace, love, and understanding when they got off the boat. You know, there were a lot of people here before that, you know, didn't didn't particularly like competition in the uh, in the fields for hunting and game, and and weren't weren't uh, happy about our being here. So uh, that was one of the. Uh, big reasons was being able to, to, to have your own gun and to be able to provide for defense and sustenance. So when we're looking at those guns used in everyday use, uh, just for hunting and, and what have you, are we still kind of looking at those same types of, of rifles and muskets that were used, uh, you know, for the military? So are we still looking at like Pennsylvania rifles and, and, uh, things like that? Is that all pretty much the same or were there any other kind of trickle down, you know, firearms that were used for regular day-to-day hunting and sustenance use? No, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, uh, you know, we evolve, uh, you know, the, the long rifle itself, the, the, the art of carving lands and grooves through the, uh, you know, through, through a barrel so that the bullet will actually grip onto the rifling and come out spinning, which increases the accuracy and the range of the gun. That was developed by the, the Germans initially in the uh, late 1500s, but had not caught on to any significant degree over here until well into the, uh, uh, you know, 17th century and early 18th century. And so the Jaeger rifles of the Pennsylvania settlers, you know, ev- evolved into the Pennsylvania long rifle. And we call it the Kentucky or the Pennsylvania, which is kind of a misnomer because every colony in North America had their own gunsmiths making, you know, these types of firearms. And so to call it, you know, Pennsylvania or, or Kentucky is kind of, a, it's the American long rifle. And, and what's really neat about it is, again, just as a car expert can tell you the difference between a 1942 model and a 1948, uh, you can look at different styles of long rifles and, and identify the region in which they were made because we still had the, uh, you know, the uh, apprentice journeyman, you know, guild system of uh, manufacturing guns. There's cottage industry, very small. And so when you had one guy that was instructing, you know, the apprentices in an area, they all tended to copy what he did. So you can look at the drop in the comb of a rifle made in Lancaster, York, Pennsylvania, and see that it's very similar to dozens of others, you know, that were made in the area. But a North Carolina gun is going to look completely different. 
Gotcha. Now, as we move on, you know, to me, it seems like there's a lot of innovation that comes about in the 1800s. You know, we're, we're talking about the first percussion cap, right? And the army adopting a rifled musket, which to me is almost, it, it seems crazy that you go this whole you know, these whole generations without, you know, the military converting to rifled muskets or not having, you know, the, the percussion caps, um, you know, what, what did that kind of do for the landscape, not just for, you know, the military, but what did those innovations allow for, for people who were just, you know, trying to stay alive and provide? Well, you know, for hunters, um, you know, being able to, um, have a, a percussion, you know, fired gun help them a great deal because you were no longer dependent on, you know, inclement weather wiping out your meal plans. You yeah. know, a flintlock and especially a matchlock and any type of the flints, the snap hounds, the Michelets, you know, bad weather is going to completely uh, eliminate your your ability to, to make that spark when you fire it. So that uh, percussion gives you a much more reliable, you know, ignition system as well. Uh, they used to call it the flinch lock, you know, on an old flintlock gun because you fired it uh, or you pulled the trigger. You hoped it would spark. If it sparked, you hope the spark would ignite the frizzing pan. And then that goes off and then touches off the main charge. With a percussion, it's hammer falls, bang, boom. I mean, you, you've got an instantaneous, you know, your gun going off with the primer at the same time. You don't have that hang fire, which anybody that's been hunting eastern white-tailed deer can tell you that, you know, just just a sniffle will send one of those, you know, bucks off into the tree line. You don't have to wait for the hammer to fall the rest of the way to, to spook them. And so being able to... Uh, to fire on on game without spooking them first was a, was a big deal. Yeah. Now, the, like I said, this was pretty surprising to me. I, I guess just again surprising in the ways of thinking of how quickly history comes at you. Uh, but getting you know the the U.S. Army to adopt uh, rifled muskets, you know, was that you know being in being in the 1800s, and obviously we're gearing up at this time frame into the Civil War. You know what what was that you know kind of kind of timeline like? Were they modifying original firearms? Were they making new firearms to be rifled muskets? I mean, what what was that you know adoption process? Well, it's kind of funny. They had. They had only 80 years head notice on this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was only 80 years to get ready. Why rush? Yeah. You know, Patrick Ferguson was the Scottish major during the American Revolution. And he f realized early on that if you're going to want to reach out and get the enemy, you need to do it with a rifled gun because that's going to put a spin on the projectile. It's going to go further and it's going to be accurate. It's like, you know, a, a well-thrown football versus just lobbing a football at somebody. You can really tack, you know, a wide receiver in the end zone, you know, not 80 yards off with a well-thrown spiral, right? Bullets behave the same way. The muskets, the smoothbores that we had, as Major Hanger of the British Army wrote, woe be it to the unfortunate fellow 
hit at and done harm by a ball fired at a greater than distance of 75 yards. You know, so you basically put, you know, opposing armies in the end zones of a football field, not draw a whole lot of blood, but a rifle that's going to reach out and go through you at, at 300 yards mm-hmm. uh, back then. And Ferguson knew that repeated use of a rifle meant that black powder fouling would build up on the inside of the barrel and make it more difficult to get that projectile to seat in the in the barrel of the gun. Uh, because for a rifle to be effective, the marriage between the lead and the lands and the grooves and the rifling has to be perfect. A musket's easy. It's smooth board. It just rolls down like a marble down a pipe and comes out the same way. There's very little, you know, tolerance. Uh, there's a lot of tolerance there. In a rifle, there's no tolerance. It needs to be, you know, micrometer to micrometer, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the, the fit. Uh, but black powder fouling is going to cause that to constrict and make it hard to load. So Ferguson developed a breech-loading flintlock and uh, used that during the American Revolution, almost shot George Washington off his horse at the Battle of Brandywine. Uh, But he and his guys were wiped out to the man down at Kings Mountain in South Carolina when they were ill-deployed in thickly, uh, you know, overgrowth brush and, and woods and so his kind of idea of this breech loading rifle died with them so then we fast forward to the american civil war and we realize that you know rifles are, are you know we need them to start inflicting casualties greater distances and so they uh, they gear up the armories to begin you know making uh you know rifled guns we started making you know, them at Harper's Ferry in 1841 with the uh, Mississippi rifle. But a lot of our other military guns, the 69 caliber smoothbores of, say, the 1842 pattern, uh, we converted those. You know, we, 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 we you know, rifled a lot of them, uh, converted a lot of flintlocks to percussion, and, uh, and then began making our, you know, our own rifles to the degree... That during the Civil War, we had 33 factories producing the same model Springfield, and we made 1.3 million of them in, in 48 months, mm. all identical with interchanging parts. Yeah, well, and and as you mentioned with the with the Civil War, you know, one of the notes you have here in your article is that you know after the war you have all these surplus firearms, and it says that a lot of them were converted into shotguns, which was something yeah. I never really thought about. You know, I'm, are they just taking like regular smoothbore type muskets and converting those in, into shotguns? Well, smoothbore is a shotgun as far as they were concerned at the time. Uh, you know, so they were just, you know, rifled guns. They could bore out a little bit more. You know, when we talk about the guns that won the West, we always think of the Winchester, the Colt, you know, John Wayne, mm-hmm. Audie Murphy, you know, those those guns as being the guns that won the West after the Civil War. But my friend Phil Spangenberger had a really neat take on it. He said, no, the gun that won the West was a double barrel shotgun. And uh, and when you think about it, he, he's right on the money. Uh, 
you know, a Kohler Winchester cost a lot of money, you know, 20, 30 bucks. And a lot of those settlers, that's, that was another ox or mule to, to take with them on their trek across the continent. Uh, but most people could afford a $3 shotgun. And that's what most people had were these Belgian imported, you know, mass produced shotguns that, uh, you know, double barrel and, and they would get the job done. That's what you needed for, for sustenance on the planes. And, you know, last hope blast through a window against, uh, uh, you know, an, an aggressor attack of some sort. You know, that, that worked out well, gives you two shots quick. Yeah, that's something, too, that I, you know, it, there's a little bit of it that I know I'm probably influenced by all the Western movies and everything that my grandfather would watch when I was visiting. But, like, you know, you think of just traveling across the continent and seeing things like giant buffalo you know, and you got to take those, you got to take those out for, for food and for safety, all of those types of things. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, you're probably, if you're in that type of, um, financial situation, you're probably not loan trekking it across, uh, the continent. If you could, you know, afford one of those Winchesters or afford one of those Colts, if you're really going out there and trying to strike out for you and your family, you're right. I mean, it's, it's that $3 shotgun that's going to be, you know, protecting you and, and keeping you fed along the way. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and there are just tens and hundreds of thousands of them. Yeah. Um, and that brings it to the next kind of, you know, pieces of innovation, you know, things like metallic cartridges, smokeless powder, uh, repeating lever action and pump action, all of this happening just before the turn into the 20th century, you know, I find very, very fascinating. Um, but also here you, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, the uh, Mauser perfects the bold action and introduces the M98, uh, the most successful rifle action to date. You know, how long does does that take, you know, to get plugged into commonplace, readily available to citizen type firearms? Or does this go directly, you know, more to military usage? You know, just it's kind of hard to think of. Um, America at a time where there's so much territory that's still uncharted and, and still connected to you that you don't actually own. Uh, and then the, that disbursement of, of, you know, firearms technology, you know, what do you think were some of the, the, the ones that got out to the public, the, you know, the quickest and that were, you know, brought into day-to-day life, uh, early, early on? Well, I think, I think one of the, the more interesting ones, of course, would be the the Auto 5 Browning. You know, uh, there's a huge rush to develop semi-automatic actions and full automatic actions after the uh, the veil of black powders, you know, where we escaped that shadow of black powder and fouling in the 1880s with smokeless powder. You, you don't have to worry about your your mechanism jamming up because it's it's you know 
trashing itself every time it goes off. And uh, so that allows Maxim to invent the machine gun, Bowser to invent the semi-automatic pistol, Browning to go crazy on hundreds of different designs that are full and semi-automatic. And one of his most beloved and is still in production, you know, is the auto, auto five shotgun. And, and so that's a semi-automatic shotgun that, uh, you know, was right there at the turn of the century. And that really goes civilian first instead of military, then civilian, which is kind of the way, the way of the world with most things back then. Uh, you know, the military gets first crack at it, does all the R and D and, uh, uh, you know, ironing out the bugs. And then later a civilian version is, is made. Uh, you know, the Mauser brothers, you know, one of the brothers was working in Ilian, New York and was at Remington when they were, you know, trying to perfect this bolt action idea and the magazine fed. And, and we actually have a, a Mauser in the collection that predates the 1867 patent model. Mm. So we're looking at just two years after the end of the civil war, you know, the Mauser brothers are taking out patents on the bolt action you know, with self-contained metallic cartridges. And uh, that reaches its apex with the 1898 version. And and that's what our 1903 Springfield looks like. And what the 1903 Springfield looks like is eventually what the Model 70 Winchester, the Model 700 Remington, you know, on down the line. But you don't get those developments until the 1930s and then in immediate post-war America. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you start seeing a bunch, uh, you know, a, a ton more uh, innovation right as the century turns, you know, and, and I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me, like you mentioned in your article, having kind of like these, these heroes of hunting, you know, that are on a big stage like Theodore Roosevelt, you know, being, you know, launching into conservation movements, having public land available, kind of really championing, uh, you know, hunting as not just, um, not just a way to eat anymore because, you know, now we're starting to get into, people could go to dry goods stores and, and the, you know, there's businesses and economics behind, you know, feeding America and to be able to have someone like Teddy Roosevelt, kind of this Renaissance man promoting, uh, you know, the promoting hunting and conservation and, and dealing with wild game to me, that, that seems to almost be a, an exponential fire that then moves into more, you know, innovation in the technology, uh, for firearms. I mean, would you say that that's decently accurate that, you know, that, uh, it, the, you know, folks, those personalities kind of helped move, uh, you know, hunting into the 20th century? Well, with Theodore Roosevelt, you had a young, vibrant, athletic, effervescent, you know, chief executive kind of comes to power at the same time that, you know, newspapers are really beginning to, you know, vie for circulation. You know, this is the age of of William Randolph Hearst and uh, Pulitzer and, and uh, 
you know, the rest of them that are really vying for hundreds and hundreds of thousands in daily circulation. And so they're looking for news, just like cable news is today. You know, they're on 24 seven. So they got to fill that void with something. And, and they went for something that was, that was attractive and, and Theodore was right there. You know, the youngest president in the history of the country. And as soon as William Howard Taft raised his hand to accept the uh, oath of office uh, from uh, the chief justice and replaced Theodore Roosevelt, became the 27th president of the United States. Theodore turned around, raced back to Sagamore Hill, changed his clothes, got on a boat and went hunting for a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he was gone yeah. and, and, and went on a year long safari for the Smithsonian. And, I mean, they write that they took about 5,000 specimens, you know, and animals. Well, a lot of that was to feed the, the giant, you know, hunting party. But the primary objective was to collect specimens for the Smithsonian. So if you go to the Kenneth Baring Hall of Natural History and Mammals at the uh, Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History in, in D.C., most of those African animals were taken by Theodore and Kermit in, in 1910. And of course, the whole time they're doing this, he's serializing his story in Scribner's magazine, which was also selling, you know, weekly magazines. So just like a television series today, you know, you have stay tuned for what happens next week, you know, Will he get the lion or will the lion get him? That's how he was writing to keep people interested. This dragged on, not dragged on. It it, it proceeded for, you know, a year that way. Yeah. And then like, you know, you could go buy the disc and, you know, <laughs> the whole season complete on DVD. You could go to the store and buy the whole book, African Game Trails, which in its own right became a huge bestseller. Uh, so you had people all over, you know, interested in, in what this guy did. And, and that goes back to the day he start, takes over, you know, uh, the day he becomes president, uh, his son, his eldest boy, Theodore Jr. is hunting deer in New York. That's why he was in New York, uh, was they were up in the Adirondacks and his son, Theodore Jr. shot his first deer the day that you know, McKinley died and he had to rush down the mountain and, and take the oath of office. When he was in Mississippi as president hunting bear, the press was frustrated that he didn't, you know, have a bear trophy to show him. And one of his guides says, well, you know, I got this crippled up bear over here that's kind of chained to a tree. You know, if you want to shoot that, I'll get rid of the chains and we could tell him that, yeah, you know, and he went ballistic. You know, he says, that's not hunting. That's not gamesmanship. That's not conservation. Uh, that's showmanship. And that's not what this is about. And, uh, you know, the poor bear had to be put down and, and the little cub, I believe, was sent to the zoo in Washington. Uh, but the father of an NRA uh, artist, you know, uh, one of our uh, American riflemen uh, uh, art department guys, Clifford Berryman, he uh, drew this little bear in Mississippi where Theodore had drawn the line against 
you know, shooting at some, and uh, that little bear became a little editorial sidelight in all the theater cartoons. And eventually the kids really loved the little wisecracking bear and the editorials. And, uh, uh, you know, Toy Merchant New York and then eventually Stife in Germany began making stuffed plush versions of Theodore's bear, what we now call teddy bears. So, you know, presidential hunting. I mean, there's an echidna game. They may not, you know, want to think about where dinner came from, but they go to bed with that teddy bear wrapped up in their arms every night. <laughs> yeah, that's such a that's such a great story. And, and the fact that it comes from one singular event you know it wasn't just a focus group ad campaign you know this is just uh going from editorial cartoon type you know pieces and and then moving into something that's touched pretty much everybody's lives you know the the world over you know getting getting back into some of the technology you know piece that comes in uh after uh, after the turn of the century, you know, something listed here is that Winchester Model 70 bolt action being the rifleman's rifle. You know, what, what do you think, uh, what were the key components that really made it the, the rifleman's rifle? Was it more about the technology or was it more about the availability or was it some sort of, you know, yoking of both? I think it was probably a mixture of both. I mean, you had the, you know, the twin lug bolt system, uh, yeah, it, it was just took the best parts of everything that was out there, the feed, uh, the, the bolt and, uh, and put that into a, a light, uh, well-balanced, you know, rifle that was, uh, you know, in a caliber 30 out six and, and amongst others, dozens of others, uh, that, you know, made it very, uh, accessible for the, uh, for the hunter in North America. And then that, you know, that spread worldwide. And of course, we we evolved back to that with, you know, the various model sniper rifles that we've adopted, the Model 70 and the Model 700 too, you know, for our military over the years. You know, one thing that uh, that your article brought up that I had never really thought about was that, you know, after World War II, or I guess during World War II, because of so many people deployed and the war effort in general, that there was a big spike in the game population. And so there was kind of a you know, there there was definitely more uh, more to be harvested, basically, when when people came home, uh, which is something that I had never really thought about. Um, it, it, was that just a combination of GIs deployed and manufacturing facilities, you know, turning over to the war effort? Was that really the the predominant uh, uh, reason for the for the spike in the game population? Yeah, and, and you, you, I mean, think about it, we've got sixteen million people in uniform. Now mm. uh, that, that took a lot of people off, you know, off the rolls of, you know, hunt, hunting licenses. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you've got a, a lot of folks looking to, to hunting to, uh, to provide, you know, what ration cards couldn't, you know, fresh meat. And, uh, but again, you had, you know, ammunition and a few other things were also restricted, you know, because of the, the war effort. So, you know, just like car tires, you know, once they got used up, you weren't getting a new, new pair of car tires. So you had to make each shot count back then. And, you know, unless you were really into reloading and, and things of that nature, a lot of folks were, um, 
but I, I know that uh, we went hunting with a, a, a friend of mine and his father had, you know, hunted the same patch of ground that we were hunting on back in the twenties uh, and thirties. And he said they would go whole years without seeing a harvestable buck, you know, a, a deer that they could, they could even take a shot at. And we were sitting there, you know, picking out which buck, yeah. you know, we wanted to shoot because there were literally 30 of them, you know, just milling about, you know, on, on any given day up in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, they said, you know, if they would have wrecked the school bus if they had driven past the back of a pack of deer that large on the way home from school, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it would just been the most sensational thing they had ever seen in their lives. And, and that just shows you, you know, how the deer population is. Uh, and they say there's more deer here now than there were when Columbus you know, discovered the, the hemisphere Jeez. that the uh, population's gotten that big. Well, and you know, a piece that was on here too, that you mentioned is that in this time, there's a resurgence in, in muzzle loading. Um, you know, what was that more of like a hobby craftsman thing or was there something to do with availability of firearms? You know, what, what kind of spiked uh, the whole resurgence in, in having uh, muzzle loaders? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, in, in the 30s was certainly a, a hard time for a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, store-bought ammunition was, you know, expensive. Uh, you could take an old percussion gun out and, and still hunt. But I, I think a lot of folks were, you know, the, the, like I said, the Depression wasn't as as enveloping as I think some of us like to think. Or, you know, it was... Uh, there were, there were a lot of people horribly affected by it, but, you know, kind of like today, you know, where you've got people that are out of work because of, of the plague or, you know, life still seems to have most normalcy on the surface, you know, when you look at it. And yeah, there are more people suffering now than there were, you know, over a year ago, the the depression was a lot like that too. So a lot of things were still normal on the surface and sure hunting, hunting was, but I think a lot of people found comfort in things that were old. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could go to Walmart today and you can find a turntable uh, that'll play vinyl uh, 33, Mm -hmm. uh, 45 and 78 RPM. Yep. And, and that's, that's cool. People are like, wow, that's vintage. That's retro. I ought to take that home with me and, and, and get some vinyl. You know, I hate to say I'm a, you know, a, a troglodyte, but you know, I've got a Victrola from 1926 in the corner <laughs> of my living room and it works Right, and it's always worked. You know, these are guns that have been around the house since the 1700s and the 1800s and they still work. You know, it wasn't like I need to go out and buy a new old one. I, I've already had that. You know, it's still around. And and they were still cheap. You know, there isn't any of us out there that collects guns that wish we could take the Bannerman catalog from 1936 and go back up to Bannerman's Island in New York and buy, you know, Springfield muskets for $2 a piece and, you know, 73 single actions for $4 
you could you could take your choice of guns that were brought up from the battleship Maine, listed by serial number, you know, and buy one of those uh, cannons from the Spanish American War. Uh, all that was available for pennies on the pound back then. Yeah, that's that's something I definitely couldn't imagine today, having cannons <laughs> readily readily available for you. Well, the last uh, thought that I'd, I'd like to uh, or, or piece that I'd like to, you know, wrap up with is, you know, as you highlighted in, in your article, you, you know, you have some photos of, you know, like Eisenhower with his firearm and you have uh, pictures with, uh, uh, you know, Reagan with the one that was presented to him in 81. And, you know, that's, you know, for me, you know, as, as a man of my thirties, I, I think the only, you know, kind of presidential, uh, influence on hunting that I ever heard about firsthand was vice president Dick Cheney, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and him hunting, you know, I, it just seems very interesting to me that there's been such kind of a, kind of a steep, you know, drop off in, in the kind of outdoorsman, uh, chief executive, like you were mentioning with Teddy Roosevelt. And I think with, with anybody else, you know, you go farther back, it was such a part of everyday life, you know, hunting and, 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 and just being able to be, you know, decent with a firearm, so many different presidents that served in the military. So you at least knew that they had, you know, some kind of background in it. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's really a question to answer, but I I just think that that is an interesting piece. And part of me wonders if that's kind of one of the reasons we have this mired relationship with firearms in the States these days is that, you know, we're, we're not necessarily seeing it as part of everyday life like previous generations did. Yeah. I think a lot of it, you know, uh, what presidents did or do, was considered cool and and a lot of folks wanted to emulate that, you know, Theodore, you know, certainly added to the spike in folks wanting to, uh, the big game hunt, the trophy hunt and, and, uh, travel to another continent. That was pretty radical stuff. Uh, you know, traveling to another continent to hunt, uh, you know, the big five in Africa, you know, trying to, to take, take those you know hunting goes from just merely being sustentive to to being a form of recreation and then we've you know as we develop our industrial strength and and our economic well-being we have leisure time i mean well leisure time didn't exist in the 19th century for americans yeah Uh, so let's make games let's go out and shoot play pigeons uh Mm -hmm. let's watch people shoot uh things that are you know trick shots like add topper wine and blinky topper wine and ed mcgivern uh we can go spend a nickel to watch them shoot and and that becomes popular you know sporting plays uh you know live pigeon shoots things of that nature uh start to occupy our free time and our leisure money you can go out and buy a, a gun for hunting and, you know, one for, for shooting uh, clay birds. Uh, it doesn't have to be the same gun for both, uh, you know, and, and presidents, you know, help lend a, an air of legitimacy to that sport. I mean, when did golf become, you know, just overwhelmingly, you know, popular here? Well, you know, Eisenhower was on the, on the links all the time. 
you know, he, he was always you know, out there playing golf and every, you know, everybody followed suit. Uh, you know, you had Roosevelt hunting. Eisenhower loved to go trap and skeet hunting. I mean, you go to Gettysburg, he's got trap houses right off the front door of the house. Yeah. You walk about 30 yards and you're at Ike's trap, trap and skeet field. Mm-hmm. And he had all kinds of, of firearms uh, that he enjoyed in his collection there. And, uh, you know, there are a number of presidents. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, you know, shot with Eisenhower up at up at his farm in Gettysburg, and had a, quite a collection of firearms himself. Enjoyed them, you know, tremendously. So what presidents did or do, you know, has always been kind of emulated uh, by uh, you know the sports sportsmen in the country and and what they uh, they they like to, to follow suit with. And hunting and and shooting, recreational shooting, has always been one of them. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we get going today, just want to remind folks where they could learn, you know, more about the NRA Museum. Uh, we'll, we'll have a link to this article we were referring to today, which was fun for me because the published date on it is May 1998. So to see the uh, to see the the time that has passed for the NRA Museum and, and you know, just uh talking about new buildings and talking about new displays to now what you have, you know, across the country and as well as your online catalog, I think is uh, kind of a neat peel back uh, through time. But uh, if people want to get uh, in touch and learn more about what the NRA museum has to offer, uh, where should they go? Well, we we're, we're available 24 hours a day on, on the internet at uh, NRA museums.org. So, uh, we go there. You can visit us here in Fairfax, Springfield, Missouri, or Raton, New Mexico, and we have you know facilities at all all three. I believe the Springfield, Missouri folks are the only ones that are currently open until the uh, the plague subsides. But as soon as that that does, we'll uh, we'll be back in fine fine fighting shape once more. Wonderful. Well, Phil, thank you again for being on with us. We'll have links uh, to everything that he mentioned in the show notes this week. You can find that at factsandfirearms.com slash blog and click on episode 45. And uh, Phil, we hope to have you back on soon. I I look forward to it. I really do enjoy these. Good, good. Thank you so much. If you're looking to up your game for gun cleaning and maintenance, you have to check out the Tipton Ultra Gun Vice. Uh, This thing is amazing. It's incredibly modular, uh, pretty lightweight, but really, really heavy duty, all the way down to the steel tube frame, all these different modular pieces and parts, even the accessory trays are solvent resistant, and uh, they have excellent gripping pads to make sure that you don't scrape up the gun that you're working on. Even work on things like crossbows. So if you want something that's gonna be the one-stop vice for all of your gun cleaning and maintenance needs, you definitely need to check them out. Uh, You could head to tiptonclean.com to check out all the specs, all the reviews, see some more photos uh, of this vice in action. We're actually going to be using this particular one for some research and development projects uh, for some new products from Faxon coming up soon and we're excited to share both those products and the footage of the testing with you. Uh, So again, visit tiptonclean.com and check out the Ultra Gun Vice. into another segment this week jay is out so instead of jay's world of eats it's uh, zach's world of snacks 
pretty clever. Uh, Jay is out today, so Zach is pitching in last minute, and uh, so I, I have some reserve snacks here. They look disgusting. It's a change of script. Normally, I'm the one surprised by the snacks, and today, Zach shall be. Well, today's installment is brought to you by our friends at Condition One Cases. Uh, we're giving away one of these hard-sided rifle cases from Condition One. We gave away a more like pistol range type hard-sided case uh, away a couple of weeks ago, so they were gracious enough to send us another one. Uh, if you're familiar with Condition One or with some of the facts and uh, guns, our FX-19 ship and hard-sided uh, uh, Condition One cases. And also the 5500, the Ion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's obviously different than that, but, yeah. you know, Condition One still makes them, they supply them. Yeah, and uh, just for those who, who don't remember, Zach is our inventory control manager, so uh, he is normally in the office with Jay, uh, which... Yeah, we share an office, uh, so... Making all those purchasings. Jay's kind of my um, mech, Your right? mech, mech robot. Okay. So like I'm the person inside that controls the J. Got it. Because yes. I do everything for you. Remember J, like right? the like, first Men in Black. Remember there was that little the, alien, alien inside the guy's head. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Zach is or, the little little guy inside uh, his head. Rick and Morty. Pickle Rick. Right? Okay. Uh, I'm like, not very familiar. Creates with Rick the and Morty. rat suit and just it's. <laughs> YouTube it. <laughs> YouTube it. It's worth a Google. Yeah. Uh, so, Zach, today uh, I have a little something that uh, my wife picked up for me because I like wasabi peas. Have you ever had those? Like yeah, the uh, Jay likes wasabi peas. Okay. It's and good he stuff. forced me to try them a long, long, long time ago. Well, they're, since they're solid, but they're like, uh, it's, you know, horseradish gets in your nasal passage. Yeah. And that's like, that's what I can't stand because I'll, like, I'll go to breathe in my nose yeah. And then I'm like, oh. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You can't eat like a handful of them. But these yeah. are sriracha-flavored peas. Right. Uh, they look you... a little less uh, threatening. Yeah, they don't uh, They don't mess with your sinuses quite as bad. But these are from the people at Happy Snacks, H-A-P-I. They're Snacks. okay. They're okay. They're okay. They'll pass. I like me. I like sriracha. I, uh, <clears throat> And Jay would approve because it is a product of China. Yeah, I don't like. Uh, yeah, sriracha is weird with me. Yeah. So I love sriracha and chili, but like I don't use it as hot sauce. Yeah. Some people are like, oh, put that on my whatever. Yeah. Sriracha's got a good flavor, but <sighs> you're conflicted. Can I tell you a little story? Yeah. So on the way here to the marketing room. I opened a box and it was for Ryan Faxon. Uh and it, it was a it's a ten. Like a cookie ten or something. Yeah. And I almost brought that. And almost <laughs> just said, get out of here, Ryan. We're keeping it. Right, Ryan, thanks for your gift. because um, I didn't have anything to bring. Well, so. speaking of weird food things, did you see and I think I, I didn't read the Snopes thing on it yet to see if it's real, but did you see the the picture that was going around? That Lifetime is having a Christmas movie that's based on, like, KFC? No, but my girlfriend might know about it. You should ask her about it. K I'm going to Google it real quick. KFC Lifetime is it, movie. Is it like... Uh, With Mario KFC Lopez. Workers? Or... Uh, Let's see. Like a love triangle with KFC? KFC and Lifetime team up for a steamy holiday mini-movie. 
It's with Mario Lopez, and it's called A Recipe for Seduction. Wasn't Mario Lopez the, uh, like, host of, like... He was the host of a lot of stuff. Yeah. But he was on Saved by the Bell. Yeah, okay. Same guy. Yeah. Yeah. If there was a, like... If there was like an awards ceremony or whatever they call them yeah. in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, he was probably hosting it. He was, yeah, he was on <laughs> a lot of stuff. He's one of those dudes that like never aged. All right. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. The, the, Nicholas Cage. Keanu Reeves. Uh, Vampires. The, the second uh, snack that we have today is. I'm going to finish these, by the way. Yeah, go for even it. Even though they're not that good. Well, Robert Combs brought these in, and apparently there's a bit of a story behind these. These are called a whole shebang. Potato chips. They look a lot better than um, sriracha peas. <laughs> so it says they are distributed out of Missouri, but they're a product of Canada. And the reason Robert brought these in is apparently these are served in a lot of prisons. And he found these. I don't know if he found them on eBay. You know, that's just served in a lot of prisons. I, that's what he said. These Ramen are like prison noodles. chips. Like you know, some of his his friends that are you know police officers or work in the uh, penitentiary say that these are like really good chips in like the cafe or cafeteria or whatever. Hey. But like you don't just go to the store and get them. I have not done any <clears throat> Urban Dictionary on these. I've not done any Snopes look up on these. But according to Robert, these are. Prison chips. You know, I spent a short time in jail uh, when I was younger. For not what? not in bars, not behind bars, what but in front you, of the bars. What did you do? I, I was an intern uh, for Dearborn County Sheriff's Office. Okay. And uh, they have some interesting. Chips? No, I, I don't think I did, but they do have some interesting food. Yeah. Uh, didn't really try anything because. It was an internship. I'm not going to be like, hey, for, can, can I, I try some food? <laughs> How but, old were you when you were working there? Well, I was probably 19, 20. Okay. So yeah. like just out of high school. I was college, in college. college. It, was a, it was a capstone course like gotcha. for my associate's degree. Gotcha. So I probably been 20, 21. Gotcha. Yeah. So apparently prison chips. Let's give them a try. It says super seasoned snack. The potato chips with the incredible flavor that <laughs> Oh, my God. Are they good? <laughs> I hope you don't have high blood pressure. These are, is that like vinegary? It's almost like. It's very vinegary. It's like. Um, it's almost like salt and vinegar. It's like salt and vinegar chips, but it's got like a spice to it. Yeah. Super seasoned, taste-tastic items. Rob, I'm no longer mad at you. These are pretty good. Each with its own amped up spin on the distinctively intense invention that is the whole shebang. Wholeshebang.com. If you have social media, we'll tag you, and I'm sure Jay will ask for a factory tour. Is there a manufacturer? Is are they the manufacturer? The whole shebang, or is there like a? It just says product of Canada. Yeah, wholeshebang.com. We'll yeah, I'm starting up. to kind of feel my Canadian side come out, eh? Eh? You know? Eh? Don't you start. know? No, <laughs> don't you know? Uh, really loving hockey right now. Just feeling like yeah, real you know, I mean, hockey. It's real nice uh, watching people beat each other up. You know. Uh, Pop a tooth. You know, whatever you got to do. Several years ago, I had to, uh, when I was still gigging as a musician, I took uh, a couple of dates in Canada. I was sitting in for a band <laughs> and I had to drive to Canada for some gigs. Poor it was guy. like a residency at a theater or something. So, anyway, we're up there and I never spent any time in Canada. Um, no offense to our Canadian customers and listeners or anything. Oh like yeah, that. when I joke about Canada, no. I, I like Canadians. Yes. But I'm a big have fan a funny of the accent. That's okay. I'm so a big do we. fan of the Red Green Show. I like Michael Tom Dublé. Green? No, Red Green I Show. I love Tom Green. Have you ever seen the Red Green Show? 
No. Oh my gosh. This used to be late night PBS gold. And I think every episode is on YouTube. Wasn't Tom Green also late night PBS gold? No, I think he was Comedy Central. <laughs> Tom Green on PBS. He had a talk show. Was, okay. Not sure what channel, but. But anyway, uh, so I had not spent much time in Canada. I think the only time I had ever been was go to the other side of the falls, <laughs> take some pictures and I've go back. I've never been, so yeah. So this is my first time. We're up in like Ontario place called bright ontario canada and i'm getting ready for like sound check or whatever because like the band would be in the back and we'd test levels and then right before the show all the musicians would go out first all the instrumentalists would go out first and we'd start playing you know and the singers would come out and do the whole thing and you would hear in your head uh, headphones and your in-ear monitors they had little crowd mics so you could hear like when people are clapping and getting into it, kind of like these ambient monitor mics. Mm. Too much information, I'm sure. But what that bit. meant was when before we started playing, I could hear the crowd talking. Yeah. And like the first few rows were like extremely clear. And it was like every Canadian stereotype was playing nice. up in the head. Like I heard him just talking constantly about about hockey uh, uh, poutine, you know, poutine, some, some poutine yeah. hot hamburger uh, sandwiches. The hotel that I was staying at was right across the street from a Wendy's and a Tim Hortons, and the Wendy's sold poutine. Yeah. Oh, nice. And uh, the Tim Hortons was probably one of the nicest establishments I've ever been in my yeah, life. There was one uh, right was a huge Springboro, uh, the exit of Springboro. It was well, always pretty good. Well, that know? was something that was weird about moving down here. There's a bunch of Tim Hortons in Columbus. There's like right. none in Cincinnati, yeah. but there's a ton of Dunkin' here. There's not a lot of yes. Dunkin' in Columbus. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, that Tim Hortons, it was like really posh and like, I don't know, man, it was crazy. It was like a whole other world. Yeah, no, Um, before we leave the subject of Canada too, Yes, uh, I want to say that I appreciate Ice Road Truckers because I used <laughs> to watch that when I was a teenager. Fantastic show. Shout out to Ice Road Truckers. Anyway, the whole shebang. We'll give you a tag. Also, Happy Snacks with their uh, various mm. flavors. The whole peas. shebang's good. Happy snacks. That's not get Zach's approval, but I like them, especially your wasabi I get kind of piece. offended um, at food like that, You're mostly triggered. because Jay eats that stuff. Uh, it's more it's more of a PTSD yeah, thing it's like, with you. You, you know, get like a thousand yard stare. Almost every day at lunch, I go heat up my food, whatever I got. And I usually have a decent, regular American meal. Mm -hmm. I walk into my office and it smells like... Fish, fish, kimchi, reheated shrimp. Yeah. Like disgusting, <laughs> you know, foreign food, which foreign food is fine. Yeah, but he he reheats it and Jay saves eats it. stuff like kimchi, which is like dead fish and cabbage. And cabbage. It's like rotted cabbage. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's not normal. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, not sorry. Uh Eddie also flirts with expiration <laughs> dates pretty hard. So God, that doesn't he's that, terrible. That, 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 Terrible. I think he ate some, like, I can't remember what it was. I think there was, like, croutons that were from La Rosa's. They had to be expired two years. Yeah. And he's like, oh, seems fine. Seems fine. They're just extra croutony. Anyway. <laughs> well, good talk. Whole shebang. Happy snacks. Don't forget this week's installment is brought to you by our friends at Condition One. If you want to enter to win this rifle case, all you have to do is go to factsandfirearms.com slash blog. Click on episode 45 and there'll be an infographic there for you to click with all the ways to enter. Zachary, thank you for pitching in today, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always fun to be on the podcast. Maybe one day we'll get to, you know, have my topics. Got it. Yeah. 
send me an email. <laughs> I'll get back with you. For those of you who have been watching the podcast for a while, you may know that uh, we had Ryan Donahue from Crimson Trace on for one of our episodes to talk all things optics and red dots and some of the exciting things that CT has coming up. But I just wanted to share one of my personal favorite products of theirs, and that is their Railmaster Pro, the CMR204. So not only is it a tactical light, it's also a laser, and it has all of the industry proven technology that Crimson Trace has been known for for so many years. But they're not just limited to things like lights and lasers. They've made a big splash in the electro optics game, whether it's looking at something like a traditional rifle scope, or maybe even their new battle optic, which you may or may not have seen in some TV shows and movies recently, they have a lot to offer. So obviously you're going to be seeing some more stuff uh, of Crimson Trace popping up with us here at Facts and Firearms. You may have even seen it uh, staged on our limited edition Mustang rifle that came out in the spring of 2020. Again, lots of cool stuff from them, just like the CMR204 or anything in their Railmaster series. We would encourage you to check them out at crimsontrace.com. I think their product headline says it best, ring steel, not your ears. If you haven't checked out uh, episode 27 of the Facts and Blogging podcast, we actually spoke uh, to Jared from Caldwell Shooting about some of their uh, extensive line of hearing protection and accessories. One of the things that they sent out to us was a set of their Emacs Shadows. And the nice thing about the Emacs Shadows is not only are they excellent ear protection for the range or for training, or even when you're just mowing your lawn or working with power tools, uh, but they also are a Bluetooth headset. So if you're into earbuds and power beats and AirPods and all that kind of thing, you can still get great stereo sound, dual microphones and device control all right here from the shadows. And again, when you use those foam tips, uh, you also get a 25 dB noise reduction rating as well. So. If you're out on the range all day, you're working on a project in the garage, you want to listen to music, you still need to take calls, that sort of thing, no need to be taken on and off the giant muffs. You could just have a pair of shadows in and you can find these over at caldwellshooting.com. And don't forget to check out our whole episode about hearing protection with Caldwell at faxandfirearms.com slash blog. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't already, we would love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting apps. You could find us uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Uh, you could find links to all of those on today's show page, factsandfirearms.com slash blog and click on episode 45. While you're there, don't forget to enter in our sportsman giveaway, which we talked about at the top of the show this week, as well as the condition one cases giveaway that we mentioned with Zach uh, during his sit-in segment for Jay's World of Eats. Again, factsandfirearms.com slash blog. Click on episode 45. Don't forget, if you have anything that you would like to share with the show, you have a, a question, a, a guest suggestion, a topic suggestion, we'd love to hear from you. Make sure you email us at podcast at factsandfirearms.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week. We want to extend our deepest gratitude to military, police, first responders, and more by saying thank you with special pricing and discounts on all facts and products. Here's how you get started. First, you'll head on over to our website, factsandfirearms.com. From there, you'll want to click support, 
and Guardian Purchase Program in the drop-down. Then you'll see the instructions on how to get started, so let's just walk through those. First, you'll want to register for an account on our website. If you've already bought something from us on our website before, then this part's already taken care of. Second, you'll want to send a copy of your credentials or some reasonable verification of affiliation to customer service at factionfirearms.com. We get a lot of emails where people are like, hey, will this count? Will this ID count? Will this VA card count? Chances are, yes, a lot of them will count, but make sure you attach an image or a copy of that verification to the email before you even ask customer service. That way they can expedite the process for you. As soon as the account has been created or updated, we will send you an email letting you know that you're ready to go. The discount will be available anytime online when you go to your shopping cart. If you have any more questions, please email customer service at faxandfirearms.com.